the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave uh, this Friday morning. Welcome, everyone. Uh, We have a lot to talk about, as we always do. Dave is taking a well-deserved vacation in Florida. Uh, We have with us Heidi, the producer, who will uh, manage the show. Let's get right into it. I started yesterday's show talking about how the vaccine from Pfizer, excuse me, folks, has been approved uh, and is in use in England, has been approved and is in use in Canada. And where are we in the United States? I read last night in the newspaper, it's been approved by the FDA but or by the, the medical group therein. Meaning, as you can hear me struggle in describing it, there's such a bureaucracy, it hasn't gotten out of the FDA yet. The newspaper said, it's expected by the weekend. Every single day, someone dies of COVID. Every single day, someone's admitted to the hospital with COVID. And every single day, critically, someone catches COVID. And yet our bureaucracy has yet to approve the vaccine. Yes, I recognize it's a, it's a couple of days away, a few days away. <clears throat> and when it's your mother, your brother, your uncle, your son that dies of COVID because somebody didn't get that vaccine out in time, then it won't be so inconsequential. And so why do I highlight this? To, to demonstrate that we need to shrink the bureaucracy. This vaccine wasn't produced because of the bureaucracy. It wasn't produced in conjunction with the bureaucracy. It was produced despite the bureaucracy. And this is what President Trump had to fight, uh, the vice president who headed up the COVID vaccine program had to fight and it was produced by a private company it wasn't produced by government it was incentivized by government and produced in private enterprise and yet as as it looks like so far uh, the biden um, team so to speak is going to wind up in the white house And we are going to, yet again, expand the bureaucracy, expand the scope of government. This is what you should look forward to if that happens. Slower, less effective, um, and and more deaths relative to the COVID. What did Joe Biden say throughout the campaign? I've got a plan. He never told you the plan, but he's got a plan. 
And now what's his plan? To tell everybody to wear masks. Listen, I think masks are good. I wear a mask uh, the few occasions in which I go out in public, and I try not to do that. Try not to go out in public, that is. So the point is that our bureaucracy has made us number three at best amongst the Western countries for a vaccine created by an American company. How is that possible? And we know the answer. And so then again, when we look to state government and when we look in two years from now to elect the next governor, think about who wants to shrink the bureaucracy, who wants to shrink government. Look at the elected officials that have just been put into the legislature, meaning either through being reelected or through being elected the first time. Hold every one of them to account. Are they cutting bureaucracy or are they increasing bureaucracy? We as a state, as a populace, voted on a constitutional amendment, and we as a populace voted for more bureaucracy. We voted to give a half cent in sales tax permanently to an unelected bureaucracy. That was a mistake. That was a bad idea. It's done, but that was a bad idea. And we need to be more vigilant and more aware of the dangers of ever-growing bureaucracy. I spoke about the growing bureaucracies in higher education across this country yesterday with Chris Corbett, who will be joining us sometime this morning. And I'm going to talk about it later with him. But I want to use that as an example at the moment to show the ever-growing bureaucracy. Universities across this country, there was an article indeed about the University of Colorado where the chancellor or president or dean, I don't know what his title is, uh, is getting rid of 50 full-time faculty. Not getting rid of administrators, which are the bureaucracy, but he's getting rid of the professionals that teach our children every day and replacing them with non-professionals, what we call adjuncts, meaning people who have a job, another job, a different job. And they take a couple of hours to come over to the school and teach a class. So would you have that for any other service that you pay top dollar for? If you went to the hospital and they said, well, we've got a surgeon who's a bookkeeper during the day, but he does surgery at night, we'd like him to do your surgery. Would you say okay to that? If someone said, well, this lawyer, uh, she uh, works at a flower shop during the day, but she'll prepare your will at night. Would you be okay with that? If uh, you went to the dealership to bring your car in, Knowing you're paying top dollar for repairs, but figuring, well, this way I've got it's all under warranty. It's all tied in together. Everything's good. The service is top notch. And they said, well, we're bringing the guy uh, from down the road who uh, runs the Dunkin' Donuts in for a couple of hours during lunch hour. Uh, He'll work on your car. Are you going to feel good about any of those? But the bureaucracy in higher education across this country wants to replace professional teachers with non-professional teachers. 
Doesn't mean every one of them is terrible, but there's no way they can prepare and be expert the same way professionals can, just as in every other context that I've described to you. These are all dangers of a bureaucracy. These are all why we need to be ever vigilant about the ever-growing bureaucracy. And the thing about bureaucracy, it inherently wants to grow. And you say, well, Rob, you described any bureaucracy like it's a fungus or something. Well, in some respects it is. But more practically, think about it. Bureaucrats, the bureaucracy are made up of people and they're bureaucrats. And when they take on burdens, they want to relieve themselves of those burdens. So look at any bureaucracy and track its growth. Track whether a government bureaucracy has come to the legislature the following year and asked for more money to hire more people for bureaucracy. And if the answer is yes, then that demonstrates my point. Bureaucracies inherently want to grow. And it's up to our elected officials to ensure that they do not. How have they done on this so far? It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. And so we as citizens now need to step up to the plate and watch our elected officials more than we've done in the past. No longer can you rely on your elected officials to get the job done. Too many of them, unfortunately, by the way, Republican and Democrat alike, have interests other than yours in their minds. Meaning, what do I need to do to get reelected? What do I need to do to get my next job in that context? Oh, well, I've, I'm running out my terms as an elected official, but maybe I can get appointed to a permanent job making $150,000. There are plenty of elected officials in this state who have done exactly that. Exactly that. Look at the lobbyists over at the university system. I'm not even talking about my university system. I'm talking about, look at ASU. ASU has a former legislator there making $150,000 as a lobbyist. And we're paying for it. It's a public school. Tax dollars. Hard at work. And so the lobbyist goes to the legislature and asks for more money and more bureaucracy and less oversight. What I'd like to see is just one bureaucrat, just one bureaucrat come forward and say, you know, these foundations that we have set up, folks, the universities have these organizations called foundations. And if you want to donate money to the university, oftentimes they'll tell you, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Don't give us the money. Give the money to the university foundation. And you'll think, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not sure I know what the difference is. And you, you might think it's just, well, that's the fundraising arm, right? That's how you do it. Oh, okay. But the, but the foundation is a private entity. And that money then gets distributed by the foundation to the university in different aspects. So you might say, well, why are we doing that? Here's why they do it. To hide the details of expenditures from the public. They claim, wrongly, mind you, that foundations are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. 
Now, that hasn't been tested in court in Arkansas. It has been elsewhere with some mixed results, I think, leaning in favor of transparency. And we're going to test it here. I'm going to make sure of that. But the other thing that we're going to do that will probably and hopefully rather supplant the need to test it is pass a law that says foundations raising money for public entities, working with those public entities, taking requests for money from the public entities, often housed on the public entity's property. They will be subject to the Freedom of Information Act the same way every other public entity is. It's enough with allowing the bureaucracy to set up these fictitious organizations to hide the truth from the public. It's enough. It's enough when they make $150,000 a year and their job is to hide the truth from you. It's enough. All right, Robert, let's continue this thought uh, into our next segment. Robert Steinbach is a UA Litterock law professor over at the Bone School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the Bone School of Law. He is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave is on vacation at Universal Studios, Florida. Very jealous of him for doing that. But we'll be right back after some news and traffic and other commercials. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. 101.1 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We are going to have in a few minutes uh, at the bottom of the hour, Senator Dan Sullivan calling in uh, to talk about what the governor has just announced yesterday. And that is he has announced that he's going to ask the legislature to approve what he's doing regarding the pandemic. Now, we'll talk in detail uh, with Dan, with Senator Sullivan about this, uh, but this is exactly what Dan, Dave Ellswick, and a host of other people on a legal complaint uh, wanted and asked for in a lawsuit now headed towards the Arkansas Supreme Court. They had said several months ago, excuse me, folks, they had said several months ago, that they want the governor to call the legislature back into session and to and have the legislature involved in the process regarding the pandemic. I will remind you all that I am highly vigilant when it comes to the pandemic, meaning I don't go out to uh, um, restaurants, etc. at all. Uh, the only thing I will do is take out when I do take out, I wear a mask and a shield. I haven't been inside of a building other than a doctor's office since uh, March or April, I think April. And so I'm, I am very vigilant. I don't in any way uh, suggest or believe that the pandemic, uh, that COVID itself is benign. But I also recognize that people are free to make uh, decisions for themselves regarding their health, the health of their families, uh, to a point, right? You're not allowed to run around if you have typhus and give other people typhoid. We can and have historically restricted you. So I don't mean to suggest that there can't be any governmental controls, but I think there needs to be some balance. I'm not, moreover, 
suggesting that the governor hasn't demonstrated balance or has demonstrated balance. I've said on a, on a related but distinct point, however one determines what's the right outcome or the right process, perhaps I should better say, relative to regulating society during a pandemic, that needs to be a democratic process. In other words, it cannot and it should not be solely the executive making the, that decision. Whenever you put all the power in one person's hands, inevitably it leads eventually to overreach. And so we have said all along, Dan's lawsuit, Dan's and, and Dave Ellswick and many other people who are in that lawsuit, they have said, and I have agreed, that whatever the process, whatever rules we put into place, uh, close restaurants at 11, close them at midnight, don't close them at all, I don't know, whatever process we put into place should be done both with the executive and the legislature, particularly knowing that the legislature is the most democratic, and I don't mean that as a a political affiliation, the most democratic in that it is most affiliated with the people uh, branch of government. And so we need that involvement. And the governor has now asked for exactly that. So I'm very pleased to hear that, and I applaud the governor. Uh, I, I wish it would have happened sooner, but nonetheless, I applaud the governor. And now we need to see what that process is going to look like, meaning how the legislature is going to be involved. Uh, Are they going to be meaningfully involved? Are they going to have input? uh, Or is it just going to be a rubber stamp? Now, mind you, if the legislature decides just a rubber stamp, again, irrespective of the quality of the rules being put in place. But if the legislature just says, well, whatever the governor wants, the governor gets, well, that will be a failing of our legislature. This is now a test to see whether our legislature actually means to be a working branch of government. And we will see that by whether or not they actively work with the governor to produce the best possible set of policies for the public. I'm not saying they need to be perfect. Nothing's perfect that's made by mankind, right? We are inherently flawed beings, and what we produce is inherently flawed. That doesn't mean we don't produce great things, but it means there's no such thing as perfection that is realized. There is perfection as a goal, and the realization is just hopefully quite close to the goal. So we will see. Does this legislature intend to do it right? Does this legislature uh, intend to be involved with the governor and produce a set of rules for the pandemic that have involvement from the executive branch and from the legislative branch? As you know, there are only three branches of government and there can't be any involvement from the judicial branch ahead of time. Their job, by definition, is only after the fact. So let's get the two branches of government that can be involved, involved. That seems to me to be what the invitation is by the governor. Now the ball is in the court of the legislature. It's up to the legislature to act vigilantly, 
to act in a fashion that demonstrates they intend to be involved. All if right, they Robert, phone it we in, need to get to the news. Let's do that. Yep. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck, filling in for Dave. On the line with us as we speak is Senator Dan Sullivan. Dan, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about the governor's action of last night. Here on the Dave Ellswick Show, we are always at the cutting edge of the news in Arkansas. I mean that sincerely. Last night, the governor does something. This morning, we've got Dan Sullivan on the show. Dan, talk to us about the intersection of your lawsuit, of course, Dave Ellswick is a named plaintiff in that case, amongst many others, and what the governor is doing now and how you see all of this uh, playing out. Sure. And thank you, Robert. And thank you for having me on in such short notice. But essentially, the lawsuit, as you know, said that the governor does not have unbounded power for an unlimited amount of time. Um, And we're seeing that across the nation. And we saw uh, U.S. Justice, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito speak out on it just a few weeks ago, talking about unimaginable restrictions and the fact that we are seeing uh, restrictions on individual liberties uh, that highlight constitutional fault lines. And Alito said we've never before seen restrictions as severe, extensive, and prolonged as those we're experiencing now. So this uh, government o- governor overreach has been is is going on and across the nation and recognized by a lot of people, some people that understand the law. So what the governor did last night was one more time extend uh, the emergency order, and we don't think he has the authority to do that per our constitution, and that's what the lawsuit says. So for him to to now asked the legislature to lend our support to his violation of the Constitution is, as Justice Alito said, unimaginable. You know, we cannot give away that which we don't have. And we as the legislature don't have the authority to give away our constitutional responsibility to make the laws and have the governor to enforce those laws. And what's really surprising, Robert, you know, we've been sitting here for nine months asking to work with the governor. And now the governor wants us, you know, uh, invites us to work with him. But, you know, the Constitution mandates that we work with him. It's not like the governor can say, hey, guys, I'd like to work with you. Uh, Please come and join me. The law says that we share power. The law says the legislature has certain rights and responsibilities under the Constitution. So the governor, uh, again, to to invite us to work with him is kind of farcical. Uh, And there's already set out in law that the Administrative Procedures Act and the emergency rulemaking process under the uh, under that uh, emergency rulemaking process allows for a way for the governor to work with us. Uh, Secretary Romero simply comes before the legislature, the administrative uh, council, and brings those rules before the council, and we discuss them and talk about each one of them at a time. So for the governor to say, well, guys, just I've got a package here. I want you all to come and give your blessing. Again, it's not what the Constitution or our laws prescribe. They prescribe that we work together, not when the governor wants to, but 
uh, on all things uh, pertaining to rulemaking. Does that kind of get at what you were talking about? hundred percent, Dan. And uh, one of the things you said towards the end right there is something I want to pick up on because, because I think it's critical. The question now for me is, as you described, is this the governor simply coming to the legislature and saying, please rubber stamp this? <clears throat> if the answer to that question is yes, then A, shame on the governor, meaning that's not what he should be saying. What he should be saying, and it's not clear to me what he's saying, but maybe you can help me. What he should be saying is, I am coming to the legislature to work with me on this, not to rubber stamp it, not take it or leave it. And secondly, now, regardless of how he phrases that, the ball at least is in part in your court, and I mean that collectively, you and all of the other senators and all of the other House members, in other words, the, the legislature. So however the governor is coming to you all to seek involvement, you all now need to step up to the plate and be truly involved, not, quote, phone it in, not say, oh, okay, whatever the governor wants. And if this legislature which is three-quarters Republican, but ain't three-quarters conservative, just rubber stamps this, then shame on the legislature. And I will campaign actively, and I've made this pledge before, and I'll make this pledge again. I will campaign actively against every elected official, Republican and Democrat alike, who doesn't do his and her job, who just phones it in, who just turns it over to the governor without any active involvement. Again, that doesn't mean any specific element of the governor's proposal is bad or good. It means whatever the outcome is, it needs to be done through a democratic process. And of course, I don't mean that from a political party standpoint. Point. I mean, involvement of the people and the people are involved through the legislature. So I want to see the legislature actively involved. I want to see the governor apparently wants to call the whole um, legislature uh, into not into session because we're coming into session, but to have them vote. Well, this needs to go through committee involvement as well. And that can take place in a matter of mere days. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? Well, you're absolutely right. And he is not calling to work with us. He's calling us to get our blessing. And again, we cannot give the governor the power that we don't have. And Robert, people need to remember, this is not just applicable to this governor. This is applicable to this governor and every governor after this uh, to the end of time, that every governor would be able to now, when they have some rules they want to make, just say, well, I'm making the rules, and you guys come and bless it if you want. If you don't want to, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Not for this governor, but for every governor down. Uh, and our Constitution provides a way, and our laws provide a way for the governor to work with the legislature. You know, to me, it's just, I think, you know, Alito's words, unimaginable, uh, really ring out to me, because there is a process for doing this. The governor notifies the administrative, uh, the legislative council, and Dr. Romero comes before the legislative council with these different uh, parts of what the emergency order lays out. And the governor mentioned a couple of them uh, last night, telehealth. Robert, that would pass in, in 30 seconds. I mean, I've, I've run the telehealth legislation three times in the past six That's years. That's your thing. I remember that. Yeah, and it has failed every time, and the governor has not weighed in. Uh, it would pass. It would sail through. 
one of the emergency orders is about uh, insuring and indemnifying businesses so they can't be sued under these things. That would pass immediately. Another one is for virtual schools. That would pass immediately. So for the governor to say, you know, he uh, he wants to work with us, absolutely. We've been sitting here for nine months waiting to work with him. Uh, but there is a process outlined in our law. And it's time that legislators stood up and and uh, recognized our responsibility, and we fulfilled that responsibility. And Robert, lastly, we took an oath to God that we would protect our Constitution. And I certainly agree with you that legislators have a responsibility to step up and do their job. And their job is not to rubber stamp uh, what the governor calls for. Their job is to stand for the Constitution and have Dr. Romero come before our legislative body and discuss these issues. Amen, brother. Well, answer me this then. what's the next step for the legislature? So the governor has made his announcement. He said he wants the legislature to approve this the way you describe it. It does not sound like there is a uh, he's seeking a true involvement. Uh, How does the legislature now ensure there is a true involvement? You say aptly, I don't mean to suggest otherwise, to be clear. You say aptly that uh, uh, Mr. Romero, he's the head of the, the, uh, what's it called, like uh, um, Department health of health. And welfare, right? Uh, Department yeah. of Health, right? Uh, has to come before the Legislative Council. How do we make that happen? How do you make that happen? How do the legislators make that happen? Well, the governor has said we can't. Uh, so he'll hmm. do what he wants. That's what unbounded power looks like, is the governor telling the legislature, I'm not going to involve you guys. I'm going to bypass you. And, Robert, every citizen should be really concerned when you have a governor saying that as many times as this governor has, that he just keeps extending the emergency order. We saw that last night. I'm going to extend it again. And he could come, he said he was going to extend it through December. He could come uh, January 1 and extend it again. He could come in the middle of the session uh, in February, extend it again throughout the summer into 2022, 23, or a next governor do the very same thing. So what do we do as a legislature? One, we need to come together, and I have a press release written that I'll be releasing uh, later today, and I hope to have a number of legislators, Senate and House, sign on to that. Uh, We need to make a public response to the governor's press conference last night. I think we need to come together as a committee of the whole and publicly and as a group uh, work with the governor by supporting our Constitution and saying, Governor, there's a constitutional solution to the problem that you present to our state. And that constitutional and legal solution and the Constitution and the law require you to work with us. It's not your suggestion. It's what the law uh, contemplates and what the law requires. And we'll work with you, come before the council, and make that statement as a committee of the whole. That would be powerful, and I hope we'll do that. Can the can the the body as a whole and or the legislative council itself subpoena Mr. Romero and withhold any approval of the governor's actions until that happens? Uh, to my knowledge, no. The governor, again, people are just now starting to understand what the governor's attorney said. She said the governor has unbounded authority. She, uh, 
or Senator Ballinger asked the attorney. They said that power was unbounded. And then she said to my question, and there's no time limit on it. Unbounded means they're not, they don't have to obey anything that the legislature does. They'll just go ahead and do what they want, regardless of what we do. Yeah, unbounded is, is the legal equivalent to unhinged. There's no such thing. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, well, so if that's the case, if <clears throat> there is no active involvement by the legislature, I gather the first step would be for the body of the whole and or the legislative council to vote no. To say we're not doing this until we receive the in, uh, we are provided the opportunity uh, to share in uh, and provide our input uh, to the outcome. Isn't is that a fair assessment? Well, the legislative council can't, uh, but the okay. committee of of a whole would have to come together and make that statement. Um, you know, that's the only real legal process we have. What the Legislative Council has been doing, as the governor related last night, is approving the CARES Act funding for businesses. So when the governor says the legislature has been very involved, well, yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got a pandemic going on, businesses, people going out of businesses, business, people losing their jobs. It's a dire situation for people. And so when the governor suggests that we spend some money on, on restaurants or uh, unemployment, Absolutely, we're going to do that. We're going to work with him to get the money that the federal government has allocated to our state. But it's completely different from approving all these rules uh, that he is doing arbitrarily. Yeah, there's a legal process, and he's following the legal process to distribute the money. He's not following the legal process to do the rules that he wants to make. You know, when you we had him uh, closing, the governor decided he was going to close restaurants at 11 o'clock. And I asked Dr. Romero for the data that suggests that. And, Robert, I'll have to send it to you, but it is absolutely ridiculous, this, the, the data that they suggest uh, closing at 11 o'clock works. One of them is other states are doing it. So if other states are doing it, then we will, too. Another, another uh, study they looked All at. All right, y'all, let's, uh, let's pause right there. Uh, we'll continue this thought uh, into the next segment. Robert Steinbach is hosting for Dave Ellswick as Dave is on vacation. We are speaking with State Senator Dan Sullivan. We'll be right back after traffic and more messages on the Dave Ellswick Show. 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning. On the line with us, Senator Dan Sullivan from the Jonesboro area. Uh, Dan is uh, vigilant in his conservative ideals and in wanting to ensure that the legislature is truly involved in the lawmaking process as the Constitution mandates. And in the context right now, we're talking about the pandemic and what the, the governor's ongoing emergency orders and the lack of involvement so far by the legislature and the governor's recent invitation for some involvement by the legislature and how that will and should roll out. We've only got a couple of minutes before the hard break at the top of the hour, and then Dan will carry over with us into the first segment of the next hour. Uh, Dan, 
so talk to us about what the legislature needs to do. We had talked before we went to commercial about how uh, if this truly is just a request for a rubber stamp, then the only proper response for the legislature would be uh, to say no. But what couldn't the legislature do rather to say to the governor, okay, we want to be involved. How do you get that involvement? How do you do what the legislature is supposed to do, irrespective of the false claim that the governor's power is unbounded? No elected official uh, has unbounded power under a constitutional democracy. What are your thoughts? Well, one thing we need to do, Robert, is bring in both parties. You, know, you mentioned in the in your lead up here that I was a conservative legislator, as I am. But, you know, Democrats and Republicans both are concerned about our Constitution. And a bill that you really helped draft and work on, the free speech on college campus bill, we had support from uh, the left and the right, both sides, because it was a constitutional issue. Uh, and I think the same is true here. So the first thing we need to do is help people of the Democrat persuasion and the Republican persuasion, uh, left and right, come to an agreement that this is not about left and right. This is strictly about uh, the division of power and the balance of power in the legislature. So I hope people that are listening uh, will reach out to their Democrat legislators because they're being left out also. Uh, they have no voice, and they are a minority party, and now they are a silent majority party. So I hope one thing we can do and people will do is reach out to to uh, Democrat legislators and let the, ask them the question, how much power do you have working with the governor? And are you comfortable sitting on the sideline and just rubber stamping what the governor wants, or are you going to ask a few questions on the people's behalf? to see what can be done to get the legislature engaged and involved as our Constitution and our laws call for. So that would be the first step, I would think. I think that's wonderful advice, but I'm going to continue to press you uh, on this question, meaning with the involvement of Democrats, what's the response by the legislature as a whole and legislators individually? Is it to simply vote no on this request if the request is simply a request to rubber stamp? Is it a um, do, do you call committee meetings? Do you try to subpoena the, um, the doctor who? Uh, Dr. Romero, what are the procedural steps that the legislature in, in general and legislators in particular need to engage in? Well, I hope we will first respond to this idea of the Committee of the Whole, and we, we do that. We bring together the Committee of the Whole, and we have some meetings just as you described, and we talk mm-hmm. about each provision of the governor's emergency order. Again, the telehealth, the insurance, the the other protection, school uh, educational issues that are out there. And we talk about those during that committee of the whole meeting and call Dr. Romero and call uh, Secretary of Education, Johnny Key, and call the Secretary uh, of uh, DHS. Dan, hold the line. Dan, that's a great point. We're going to bring, we're going to, uh, bring it back up after the break. I hear the music uh, playing into uh, our ears. So let's go to break now, and we will be back with Dan Sullivan, and Chris Corbett will be joining us uh, at the top of the hour.
Show. I'm Robert Stamick filling in for Dave this Friday morning. We have on the line with us Dan Sullivan, state senator from Jonesboro. Also joining us, Chris Corbett, attorney and professional engineer in the Conway and Little Rock area, but practices throughout the state and, in fact, elsewhere also. Um, and we have Dan, I had announced prior to the break, uh, till our upcoming break around 7.15. I'm now announcing without even telling him in advance. We're going to keep Dan till 7.30, but then we truly will let him go. Uh, and then, because we have so much to talk about here, uh, Chris, join in the conversation as you see fit. Dan, we're going to pick up where we left off. And my question for you right now is, so the governor has come forward, Ask the legislature as a body of the whole to uh, um, opine, rule on, uh, rubber stamp, you choose the term, uh, what he has done in terms of these executive orders. And as you pointed out, the there are, say, um, somewhere between 10 and 15 s- separate Uh, mandates that he's put into place and that you believe that you and most of the legislature agrees with the vast, vast majority of them. Is is there a process now that the governor has come to the legislature and said, hey, be involved, which you can break them down into the uh, dozen plus uh, mandates and say, we approve this one, not this one. Yes, 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 no, yes, etc. Can that be done? Well, actually, you make an interesting point because, uh, incredibly, that's what the Arkansas law calls for. <laughs> you know, that's there you what go. Supposed to do. The Dr. Romero comes to, to us and he says, do you guys approve of telehealth, tele- and with telemedicine? We go, yeah. He says, do you guys approve of virtual schools and education? Yes. Do you approve of? Do you approve of? And eventually we'll get to one that we may say no or we may say uh, let's let's compromise. You want this. We want this. Let's have a compromise solution. That, that's what the governor fears. And I don't know what it is he fears or why he fears representative government and our Republican form of government. Uh, it's just amazing that he fears the people and he fears the representatives of the people. But to your question specifically, yes, we could go down that list and, and talk about what we agree and disagree on. And I hope we can do that during the committee of the whole meeting, uh, that we will take each one of these issues individually, discuss them, call the, uh, uh, the executive branch before our body, and ask Dr. Romero, what about this one? What about that one? Call Representative Key up. Uh, talk, call the, uh, the insurance commissioner up. Call the Department of Health up. Call the uh, uh, DHS up before us and talk about each one of these issues. That's what uh, our Constitution and our laws provide for. And if people remember the very first uh, time the governor got up before the people and said, why, and he was asked by reporters, why are you avoiding the legislature? The governor first said, we don't have time. Well, folks, it's been nine months. Uh, we have time. Uh, we can talk about these things, uh, you know, as much as we want. Also, the governor realized that wasn't true. 
there's what's called the emergency rulemaking procedures. And in an emergency, we set aside a special way for the Department of Health to come before the legislature and expedite that process with a small committee of legislators who look at this. So the answer to your question is yes, we can break each one of those down. We can talk about them. We can do it in, a, in an open and transparent way where the people see it. You know, the governor has been going around the state having invitation-only meetings uh, where select people get to come and listen to the governor. The, what we would do as a committee of the whole would be televised. People would be able to watch. People would be able to question their local legislator, uh, text message me while we're making these decisions, and, talk, and do it in an open and transparent way. And the governor's avoiding all of those things. Well, then we have now, here on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer, have outlined exactly the test to see whether we have a conservative legislature or not. Meaning, now that the governor has asked for the legislature to be involved, we need to see each legislator ask for a separate vote on each of the elements of the governor's executive orders and vote yay or nay on each one of those. And if uh, a legislator does not seek to vote on each element of the executive orders, then he's not conservative or she's not conservative. It's that simple. Because, why? Because then it's a rubber stamp to the executive and no conservative will rubber stamp any executive, be the executive Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. Uh, And so we need to see that happen. Now, I presume that part of making that process happens uh, in both houses is with some authority of the head of each house. Uh, so I, I, I forget how we, what do we call them in Arkansas? Is it the speaker in, in the house and in the legislature, it, it, excuse me, in the Senate, it's uh, what's the head. I always mix up the two lead titles in the, in the Senate. What's the, the head of the Senate called? The president pro tem. The president pro temp. Now, we're going to get a new president pro temp uh, come this legislative session. Am I right about that? You're correct. Yeah, right and, now, uh, Mr. Hendren is the president pro temp. Uh, in January, uh, Senator Jimmy Hickey will be the new president pro temp. And so uh, when Jimmy Hickey takes over, uh, he can... Uh, I presume, I mean, this is a question, can Jimmy Hickey then, when, when he calls the entire body into um, session, calls the entire Senate, that is, into session, and receives this request formally from the governor uh, for approval of what he's doing, I presume that he can say, we're going through each of these individually. Is that fair to say? Well, uh, you're very close. I think right now, uh, Senator Hendren is the president of the Senate. And Mm -hmm. the governor is calling for us to meet almost immediately to do this. So I would assume it would be under Senator Hendren's leadership um, that this these things would occur. And I don't again, this is all new. We haven't had to do this before. So I don't know exactly what the process is other than calling uh, that committee meeting of the whole. Then I would presume someone would make the agenda. And who gets to make that agenda and who puts items on that agenda, uh, I'm not familiar with. But let me jump back 
Robert, you know, you talked about a yes. conservative legislature doing this. And although I agree with that statement, it's much bigger than that. This is about a, a constitutional issue that excludes the Democrats as much, even more than the Republicans. And the Democrats are in a strong minority in our uh, legislature, in the House and in the Senate. And for the Democrats, as a minority party, to be told not only are you a minority party, but you don't get to have any say in what we do um, and other than rubber stamping what I say. So I would think the Democrats, uh, again, it's a constitutional issue, and every legislator loses authority, not only now, but in every session from here on out, in 2022, 2023, 2024, 25, and on out, uh, governors don't have to come before the legislature. They will just say, I'm going to have an executive order because I think the climate, uh, you know, there's climate change going on. It's a threat to the health, and I'm declaring a climate change emergency. And therefore, I'm going to do ABCD. Maybe it's to limit people driving. Maybe you can only drive 100 miles a week. Maybe you have to buy a car. Maybe as, uh, I'm sorry, a fuel-efficient car. Maybe as Biden talks about on the Second Amendment. Maybe there's a, an emergency uh, health crisis with, with guns, and he's going to raise and tax guns at a higher rate. So these governors and our presidents are taking unprecedented uh, authority and power away. So right now, we only see this in the context of the pandemic. And it is serious and it is real. But going forward, governors could declare emergencies over any number of things and declare unbounded power over an unlimited amount of time and just say, legislature, I want you to come in as a committee of the whole and bless what I do. If you don't, I don't care. I'll keep doing what I do. If you do, I look really good, and it looks like the legislature is involved. That's not what our Constitution is about, Democrat or Republican. And that's what we took an oath to protect is our Constitution, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the governor. We took an oath to God to protect our Constitution. It's What's really interesting, what you're telling me now, Dan, and what I did not realize is that the governor is now calling essentially for a special session of the legislature a few weeks prior to the regular session of the legislature, if I understand you correctly. And that's what you had been asking for for almost nine months. That's yeah. what your lawsuit has asked for. And now just uh, a hairbreadth before the regular session, he's asking for a special session because his nephew is the head of the Senate and will no longer be such come January 1st. Am I am I uh, looking at this through too uh, cynical a lens? Well, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> How the stars mm -hmm. all align with that. And the difference, you know, you talk about a special session and a regular session. A, uh, this uh, committee of the whole would do a non-binding resolution. So whatever they decide is non-binding, unlike Dr. Romero coming before the committee uh, and the legislative committee, and those reviews would be binding. So, you know, it's, it's uh, very gracious of the governor yeah, to then, ask us to me, do a non-binding resolution. Why is it non-binding? What makes it non-binding? Because the governor has absolute power. 
he can absolutely do whatever he wants to do. So if we to be clear, says level, he, right? To be clear, says he. Yeah, says he. Yeah, and that's why right. we're going to court. I mean, when we come together as a committee of the whole, we could look at those uh, nine or ten uh, resolutions or his directives, they're called, and we could say, well, we agree with eight of them, but we disagree with three of them. And the governor right. says, well, thank you very much. I'm still going to do all of them. It's non-binding. Well, but the, uh, all right, y'all, let's take a yep. break. Um, Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. He is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law. We are also here discussing um, the governor with uh, State Senator Dan Sullivan and also our other legal expert, Chris Corbett, is here as well. We'll be right back after some traffic and some news. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave this Friday morning. Dave will be back on the air Monday morning here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We have on the line with us, uh, continuing and finishing up our conversation, Senator from Jonesboro, uh, Dan Sullivan. Uh, Chris Corbett has been uh, standing by with us, uh, and he's going to pick up in full force uh, at the bottom of the hour when Dan uh, signs off with us. We've got a, but a few more minutes with Dan. Oh, and at 7.30 also will be joining us another uh, Jonesboro person because apparently all good insight somehow travels through Jonesboro, and that's Hannah Howard will be joining us, law student from the Bowen School of Law. Uh, Dan, we were talking during the break, and I think it's an important point to bring up at the end of our conversation. We really only have a handful of minutes left. It strikes me that the governor is making a request for the legislature to come into session before the full session and therefore effectively bring into session a special session, and you all are going to be presented with a question of approving his um, his executive orders. And if it's a yay or nay, if it's set up in a way that all you can do is say yes or no, it strikes me that you have no choice but to vote no because you haven't had sufficient input. You don't have input when you're just told, please rubber stamp this or vote no. Well, then the choice is voting no. But if during this legislative session you're, you are able to go through each of the orders uh, that the governor has put in place and say, we, we agree with this one, we agree with this one, we don't agree with this one, then you do that and you go through each one and maybe even take some testimony from, amongst others, Dr. Romero to decide what is the best thing for all our Kansans. That's the true legislative input. And then you can vote yes, 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 and maybe an occasional no, maybe not. I don't know, but certainly uh, if given the opportunity to vote on each executive order individually, then you can actually make a substantive vote. So in other words, the vote, if you're only presented with a vote as a package, with no discussion, with no ability to break them up, that's a no vote in my mind. And if you're able to go through each one, then that's largely and maybe even entirely a yes vote. What are your thoughts? Well, I... Uh, I agree with you that we, we need to do that, not to demonstrate to the public uh, where I am on what and what we feel about each individual item, but just, just to be transparent. Most people don't know what the individual uh, directives are within the emergency order. So I'm, I'm a no vote on using this process uh, as a uh, – 
support process. I mean, I do want to do exactly as you said and just be transparent with the people and demonstrate that we want to work with the governor, but we want to work in the process as prescribed by our Constitution and by our law. The governor has gone outside the law here. He's gone outside of our Constitution. That's why we have the lawsuit out there. Uh, And we, the whole goal for nine months now has been to work with the governor. You know, we've talked about several solutions with this uh, uh, executive order or this executive meeting. Uh, The governor could solve this very easily. If the governor wants to work with us, Robert, and if he truly does, they could come before the legislative council very quickly. This uh, uh, next week, they could come before us and take all these things before the council, and this problem would be solved. And the governor would hear from the legislature as to whether we uh, have a vote of confidence in his executive orders. As a matter of fact, Robert, he could cancel, and I would suggest he cancel the emergency order, uh, terminate it, uh, and come to the fo- before the legislature. That's what our laws prescribe. That's what we ask for him to do. And he has the solution before him, as he has for nine months. He just doesn't want to use the constitutional and legal solution. He wants to use his external powers uh, as Justice Alito uh, recognizes it's happening nationally. And we are putting our essential freedoms at risk. Our God-given essential freedoms are at risk when we have governors acting in this way. Well, Dan, it's really critical that the legislature be involved in this process, and it's really critical that legislators stand up for their role in the government, that they don't phone it in. And so we are going to see this roll out in short order. We're going to see how it's presented to the legislature, if it's simply a thumbs up, thumbs down, or the legislature can actually go through the individual mandates that are in the governor's executive orders and decide each one of those. And if it's the former, uh, I see no solution uh, but voting no. And if it's the latter, then great. Great. And I I suspect that the governor will either get a complete yes or 90 to 95 percent yes. And that's uh, the outcome that is the best for all Arkansans, because it means that both the legislature and the executive are involved in deciding what we do during this time. Uh, All right. Thank you, uh, State Senator Dan Sullivan, for coming on with us. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, We will be right back because we got to get to uh, to Rush Limbaugh. We got to hear what he has to say. Robert Steinbach is a UA Literoc law professor. He is filling in for Dave Elswick as Dave Elswick is on vacation. We will be right back on 101.1 FM. The answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this morning. We have on the air with us two of our favorite guests. That's Chris Corbett, attorney from the Conway Little Rock area, also a professional engineer and likely a candidate uh, for the legislature uh, come 2022. And also... Also, Hannah Webb Howard, uh, who is now a law student at the Bowen School of Law, also president of the Second Amendment Society, uh, housed at the Bowen School of Law. Uh, And we are discussing and we will continue to discuss the issues that we just had a wonderful discussion with State Senator Dan Sullivan about, and that is the involvement of the legislature 
uh, in the process of the governor's executive orders. As we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the realities of COVID. Hannah, unfortunately, uh, got a uh, bite of the COVID. Hannah, tell us about uh, what has transpired there. How are you feeling and what people should know? Sure. So you're right. Very unexpectedly on Sunday, I tested positive for COVID. And as a caveat, in the middle of final season, because there's no better time to get the pandemic disease than in the middle of law school finals. Um, so the most interesting takeaway from mine, my husband is also positive. So from our COVID experience has been one, we don't have a clue where it came from. So we were particularly careful leading up to finals because I did not want to get COVID in the middle of finals. Um, I chose not to go home for Thanksgiving because my parents are in professions that they're regularly exposed. Um, But my husband did go home. He went home to see his family. There was a much lower risk of him contracting it, seeing them. And he kept his circle very small while he was there. And nobody that he was around, no one that we've been around, has tested positive or even has symptoms. Um, He came back and he went to work like he's done every day through this entire thing. No one had symptoms. No one was sick. And lo and behold, on Friday, out of the blue, I had a little bit of a dry cough. And, of course, every time you cough during the pandemic, you think, Corona, is that you? Um, And that's exactly what I did, but I dismissed it, didn't think anything of it. Um, The next morning, I woke up very nauseous. So that was my first strange symptom. I was very nauseous, and my cough got worse as the day went on. And that night, I told Blake, I said, listen, I really think I might need to go get tested tomorrow. Um, I just don't want to be around anybody if I'm positive. We again, we were like, okay, we'll see how you feel in the morning. Well, in the morning, I woke up with a 100-degree fever, and off to the clinic we went. Um, So what's even more interesting about me and Blake specifically is how different our symptoms have been. So meaning Blake had a stuffy nose for one day, and that's it. If I hadn't been so sick, so sick, I at no point have been as sick as you hear in the news and yada, yada, and I'll talk about that in a second. But he has had nothing more than a stuffy nose for one day. Meanwhile, I had fever. I had body chills. I had the cough. Um, If I sound nasally, it's because I am, because I have a really bad runny nose and sinuses. Um, I hesitate to compare this to something as casual and as common as a cold because I know that it's different for everybody, and so I don't want somebody to hear this and think, oh, it's just like a cold, I'm going to be fine, where you could have much more severe symptoms than I do. But for me, I have been telling people that it's very similar to a severe cold with like a splash of the flu because there for a day I did have the fever and body chills. So here we are. We're in quarantine, and we're doing just fine. That's remarkable. And you, when you went out, uh, to the extent you went out, you wore masks and followed all of the protocols that are being proposed? Oh, absolutely. And now, my husband didn't wear a mask at his Thanksgiving and when he saw his friends at home. But again, they had no symptoms. We had no reason to believe that that wasn't a safe situation. Um, but I did not leave the house. So that's what's interesting is for, I think, 11 days before my diagnosis, I left the house 
one day, one day to go take a final and mask the whole time, socially distanced. We have no, we, that's the biggest takeaway from this is we have no idea where it came from. So you really can, you don't, it, it's so bizarre how it spreads or it's really remarkable how potent the contagiousness of this is because we don't know where we got it. We don't know who we were around. And, and nobody, do you know whether any of the folks that your husband saw during Thanksgiving have since tested positive? We know for a fact they have not. Because <laughs> we, we well, called, as soon as we got our diagnosis, of course, we immediately called everyone that he was with. You know, do you have symptoms? Do you feel bad? Have you tested positive? Did you not tell us? And nobody even had a sniffle. Interesting. You know, that highlights an important point here, and that is that we are still unsure exactly how this virus operates in terms of spreading. That doesn't mean we know nothing. That doesn't mean it's not a good idea to wear a mask. It is. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take precautions. But when we see things like the governor's uh, enactment of his executive orders over the last many months, without the involvement of the legislature, it gives rise to the apt response from people like Dan and many, many, many others, Dan Sullivan, that is, state senator, uh, that the legislature should be involved because there is no one right answer here. That, and j just to be clear, that doesn't mean we do nothing. Some people say, well, we don't have proof, so we do nothing. No, that does not mean that. But what it does mean is that uh, we need a level of humility when it comes to government authority. And one way to demonstrate the humility is to allow more involvement by the people and you allow more involvement by the people through their most directly elected representatives who are the legislators. And so the way we can demonstrate uh, uh, humility of public officials is by involving as many public officials as we can. And that's what I would like to see going forward. What I would have liked to see uh, for a long time now it is seemingly what the governor is requesting, but as we discussed for uh, almost an hour, I think, with Dan Sullivan, that's the open question. Is the governor looking for actual input, or is he looking for a rubber stamp? Because if it's the latter, I'm not interested in that. Dan Sullivan's not interested in that. Hopefully there will be enough elected officials who are not interested in that. Well, see, I can't say whether that's what is being sought in any event, but... The, the alternative, as we discussed with Dan, is that the legislature actually goes through the proposals of the governor and decides each one individually. That is wholly appropriate, given what we just heard from Hannah, which is that we still don't know exactly how this operates. So having more input is better than having less input. Hannah's doctor, as she told me, uh, said you should take a baby aspirin because there's a risk of blood clots. Well, uh, another friend of mine is also diagnosed positive with COVID. I passed that on to him. He said that's news to him. His doctor never told him that. So this shows you how across the country, he's not here in Arkansas, across the country we're seeing different responses, different um, understanding of what's going on, and we need to have 
as involved a process when it comes to government intervention by all of our elected officials. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I've got a couple thoughts. The first thing about, you know, this um, interplay between the legislative branch and the executive branch, it's real simple. The governor is supposed to execute the laws, not make the laws. It's real simple. Keep it simple. He's making laws right now. He's making up stuff. And my pet peeve is he's handed off some of this, the, the rulemaking into these departments. These unelected uh, bureau hacks are making up rules. And then they send their, their minions out to enforce this mask mandate. Um, and uh, that, that's what I have trouble with. It, it, the Constitution is being trampled on, and uh, Dan Sullivan's trying to do something about it, and the judicial branch is not, is not taking it up. Not taking it serious. It's it's really a problem because people say, "Well, you know, it's just a pandemic. When the pandemic's over, yada yada yada." Folks, it's during tough times that you see how government operates and whether it overreaches. This is much like this notion of free speech that we've talked about so much on the Dave Ellswick show where they say, well, you know, that counts. You can have free speech unless I'm offended, says the lefty, right? Well, here's the thing. Free speech only matters when there's potential to offend. Nobody's clamoring uh, to eliminate greeting cards and nursery rhymes. The only issues about free speech is when somebody else doesn't like what you're saying. And the left believes there's no free speech (laughs) in that context, which, of course, means there's no free speech. Because the only context in which free speech matters is when somebody else doesn't like what you're saying, not when you're singing happy birthday to your children. And so the, the left has defined away the notion of free speech and now bring that concept into the context of emergency powers, uh, executive authority. And it's only during rough times do you see executives throughout the country seek to impose restrictions on the population. And the question then becomes, what is the extent of their authority and who else should be involved in that behavior, as you, Chris, just point out? And that is, of course, the legislature should be involved. It shouldn't be a sole individual. See, the thing about the executive branch is ultimately it's one guy. And by guy, I mean man or woman, one person. The legislature is never one person. It's always a body of people. It's always inherently more democratic than the executive branch. And that's why we are generally most concerned about the dictatorship, so to speak, of an executive. We're not generally worried about the dictatorship of a legislature. And throughout this country, we've seen overreach by executive branches. And we've seen the Supreme Court of the United States put the brakes in part on some of that. And we hear comments, for example, from my, the state in which I grew up in, New York, from Governor Cuomo, which are just, uh, um, they're, they're scary. They're downright frightening to listen to well, the words that are coming out of his mouth. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Rob, here's the pattern. Here's what you do when you're in government and you want to justify an emergency order. You create a legislative study. Alcohol is bad for you. Alcohol causes you to do wrong things. Therefore, I've taken the right to make a directive that all 
uh, permitted locations with restaurants that serve alcohol must shut down at 11 o'clock. Now, we talked about this before. At 11.05, does the, is the, is the, uh, the virus becomes more dangerous if you're serving alcohol? Come on, man. That, that, well, here, not, Chris, here's an interesting thought, and then, Heidi, we'll go to break right after this thought, if, if you can do that. Um, apparently, alcohol at 11.05, uh, it makes COVID more transmissible uh, in restaurants, but not in gambling casinos. So there why don't you we go, Rob. What, Heidi, can we take a break now? Are you with us? Absolutely. Uh, Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation right now. We are also joined by Hannah Howard and Chris Corbett. We'll be right back after this um, traffic break. We This is the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave on this Friday morning. We have but a few minutes left in this segment, and we're going to thereafter pick up our conversation at 6 p.m. this evening. So please uh, tune in then, if you don't stay tuned in throughout the day, to 101.1 FM, The Answer. We have on the line with us Chris Corbett, a local attorney here in the Conway, Little Rock area, as well as a professional engineer, and uh, hopefully a candidate in 2022 for the state legislature, and Hannah Webb Howard, a student at the Bowen School of Law, as well as the president uh, and, and inaugural, that's not the original president, the first president of the Second Amendment Society there at the Bowen School of Law. And we are talking about uh, the governor's restrictions uh, by executive order on uh, the state regarding the COVID transmission. And I'd like to read to you uh, a a brief portion of a memo put out by the Arkansas Department of Health. And it says, Directive on Alcoholic Beverage Control on-premise permitted locations. And it says, Consumption of alcohol is known, uh, bear with me, uh, is known to be harmful to health in general and is well understood to affect consumers' judgment, decision-making, and behavior. And, of course, that's an overbroad statement. We, actually, the consumption of alcohol in moderation is not known to be unhealthy. It's known to be actually healthy. Uh, and so that, that's already a misstatement. But then it goes on to say that, the, uh, that we should be restricting congregation of individuals uh, who are drinking because they will be less compliant with the regulations regarding the spread of COVID. And of course, there is some truth to that. I have no doubt. And my question to the two of you before we go to break, uh, why is that not the case in, in the casinos? Why, are, why is it when people are gambling, uh, by the way, gambling is not good for your health. You want to talk about something that's not good for your health? Gambling. It's not good for your health. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. This is so funny you bring this up. You know what? You know what else is not good for your health is when you disobey a you know a government directive, right? So let's send you to re-education camp, and let's limit your facts. You just disputed a fact. Let's limit your facts, and that way we can control you. Okay? Let's even we can't let facts get in the way of preventing or you know, causing the governor to shut down alcohol consumption premises this, this, this is so outrageous i see this pattern all the time rob i see it in the rental inspection codes i see it in building codes they create a legislative study that 
that you can't dispute. Who who said this, Rob? You just disputed that consumption of alcohol alcohol is known to be harmful. Who said that? When did they say it? Where did they say it? How did they say it? And but then they use that fact and create a new law or, or create some whack ordinance that limits your freedom of speech, limits your movement, limits your freedom of religion. It's outrageous, Rob. I come out of my seat when I see stuff like this. Well, I think it's simple. I think the casino lobbyist has more power than the public lobbyist. There you go. That's right. Well, and that's really a telling point, right? The individual little bar owners uh, don't have a lot of power in the aggregate, but casinos are inherently large organizations, and we see this in the study of organizations. They're inherently large organizations with large lobbyists. How many times has someone in the governor's office uh, or the Department of Health, I mean someone in the executive, I should say, I don't mean specifically the governor, uh, someone in the executive met with lobbyists for casinos regarding restrictions for COVID? I'd like to know the answer to that because that will be telling uh, when compared to how much the the executive has been lobbied by mom-and-pop bar owners. Again, I don't think it's a good idea to be congregating in bars at any hour of the day. Uh, I think that the best way for me to go to a restaurant is to buy takeout, which is what I've been doing. Uh, other people measure their risk differently. But the, And, of course, to some extent, you always have to draw somewhat arbitrary lines. For example, the speed limit, say it's 60 miles an hour. All well, right, Robert, really any let's bet? continue yep. this thought into the 6 p.m. hour. we got to we'll take a break it. right now. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. We are also joined by Chris Corbett and Hannah Howard. We will be back tonight at 6 p.m., so don't go anywhere. Coming up next is Financial Issues Live. Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave at the 6 o'clock hour here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Dave will be back on the radio on Monday. He's enjoying a well-deserved vacation in Florida. I have on the air with me uh, attorney, professional engineer, and likely candidate for the state legislature come 2022 uh, from Conway, Chris Corbett, and law student and president of the Second Amendment Society at the Bowen School of Law, Hannah Webb Howard. We talked this morning about COVID, COVID regulations, the executive orders from the governor here in Arkansas, the involvement of the legislature. We spoke with State Senator Dan Sullivan about that, as well as his lawsuit. Dave Ellswick is a plaintiff in that lawsuit, as you likely recall. Let's pivot slightly 
while staying on topic to something I raised at six at 12 hours ago, six o'clock in the morning. And that is, why is it? I ask you, Chris and Hannah, why is it that the vaccine that is being distributed in England, that is being distributed in Canada, and therefore fully approved and in the process, people are getting the shots as we speak, uh, has yet to be approved here. Oh, the FBI, excuse me, the FDA just met uh, yesterday and they said, okay, and now they need to send it on to another set of bureaucrats and the newspaper reports likely uh, tomorrow. It will, likely. We don't even know. It's this kind of big morass of a black box that the information goes in. Who knows what's going to come out? Why is this taking uh, so long? Why are we third when the vaccine quite literally is invented by an American company. Why aren't we first? Why are we not yet receiving this vaccine? Where's my vaccine? I want my vaccine. What do you guys have to say about this? Chris, go ahead. Go ahead, I just think this is exhibit A on when you hand things over to the government, and you say, control my life, control my decisions, protect me, it's inefficient because they're not experts. Well, of course, the FDA presumably is experts on drug approvals, but they're not the expert on COVID vaccines because they've never created one. They've never had to deal with one. And so when you say, government, be the gateway to my health, happiness, and prosperity, it's inefficient. And your health, happiness, and prosperity is going to be delayed because they are not the person who should be making your own personal decisions and your own personal risk analysis and your own personal health decisions. But here we are. We let them do it for us, and we let them be that gatekeeper. I think that's an interesting point of this whole COVID debacle is how the public has almost willingly laid over and said, government, protect me. Government, it's your job to protect me, and I want you to protect me, and please do that for me. There's been a lot of pushback of that, but there's been a lot of compliance, and there's been a lot of government do more for me. Government, protect me more. Government, take my freedom away more because I want you to protect me because I'm scared. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic that we've seen come out through all this. Chris, what are your thoughts? I I agree, Hannah, exactly what you're talking about. And I don't know the, the, the machinations of how this, this virus is going to get distributed, but it's very odd to me that what Rob is reporting here, that an American company is going to distribute vac- vaccines to uh, foreign countries first. I, I don't understand that. It's terrible. And it's just uh, uh, another example of how the bureaucracy in the United States is bloated and causes direct, tangible problems to Americans every single day. And this is what we need to fight against. And I, I hear very little on this. And the press, of course, doesn't cover it at all. The press isn't even highlighting the fact that we're third in line. How is it that we're third in line for an American-made vaccine? Thank goodness President Trump recently signed an executive order that says that the vaccine will be distributed 
within the United States before we start shipping it elsewhere. But of course, that executive order can be rescinded uh, when, if and when Joe Biden takes office in January. And let's watch. Let's see what happens. Let's see whether the Biden administration puts the lives of foreigners ahead of the lives of Americans. President Trump was right when he says he's not president of the world. He's not interested in representing the interests of other people over those Americans. He represents Americans. That's his job. Those other people are represented by their elected officials, and they can do what they think is best for their countries. And this is the ongoing problem of the left, where they view no distinction uh, between borders uh, and among borders. They view no distinction between peoples and, and countries. There's no moral distinction. Uh, a Frenchman is just as uh, uh, entitled to life as anybody else. But there's a practical distinction, and that practical distinction is the president of the United States doesn't work for the French people. He works for the American people. And as I, uh, as an attorney, Chris as an attorney, and Hannah, soon to be an attorney, all well understand, when we represent our clients, those are the only people that we represent in those negotiations and those litigations. So let's say there's a divorce and I represent the wife. Well, guess what? I'm not interested in going into court and saying, well, even though the wife uh, could get this amount of assets, uh, why don't I also think about whether the husband should take a a piece of that? No. If the law allows the wife to receive a certain sum, then that's the sum that I will argue for. That's my job. And by analogy, that's the job of the president, to make sure that every single American is treated before any foreigner is treated. I'm talking, of course, with assets from America, not, you know, if the foreign country somehow obtained the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the um, vaccine, good for them. But... If, to the extent that America receives for it, pays for it, etc., that is something that needs to go to Americans first. That's what the president means by America first. And if you don't like that concept, uh, and I know what the left likes to say thereafter is racist, xenophobe, whatever, and it's all a bunch of nonsense. Uh, 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 I think there are many wonderful people throughout this world, and I wish them the very, very best. But the fact is, it is a world of limited um, opportunity and a world uh, of um, limited uh, supply. And as a consequence, we've got to decide who gets what. Uh, and usually the market decides that. But to the extent that the government is involved in deciding that, each government should look out for the interests of its own people. Hannah, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think this highlights, it's almost the culmination of these slow processes that, you know, we've been, uh, we being the right, has been screaming about saying that um, there's been this lie fed to America and fed to my generation, frankly, that America is the big, bad superpower who has wreaked havoc on the whole world for the last five decades or whatever the number is. And because of that, we should cater to the rest of the world to make up for our transgressions. We're the big, bad superpower of the West. So we should take care of these other countries with the vaccine before we take care of ourselves. And I think that's a lie that's been woven in my generation and society in general that the government can kind of get away with, oh, let's take care of these other countries first before we take care of ourselves, because people truly believe that we are 
big and bad in a bad way, right? So I remember growing up thinking and learning that America was the great superpower, and that was a good thing. We were the best in education. We were the best in X, Y, and Z. We have the best military in the world. And that used to be a positive. And that has now been spun to my generation and younger and older that that's not true. And because we are all those things, it's a bad thing. And so I think this is highlighting the trend that we've seen and the stage that has been set for something exactly like this that is so serious and so impactful. And we led the charge because we are the best, but we don't get to reap those benefits because we're the bad guy. And Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know what's interesting is there's a disturbing trend of foreign companies buying into American companies. And I, I mean, I'm talking about European companies. I'm talking about China. China owns one of the, I think, one of the Smith Foods or something, the third largest American um, company that is producing food, meat, and poultry. And, uh, disturbing trend of foreign companies owning and buying into parts of American companies, there may be something going on here we don't know about. You know, we've got uh, uh, Chinese, uh, the country trying to infiltrate and spy on our creation of this vaccine. It's happening, folks. We just don't know about it. They send these uh, um, Asian ladies over here, the so-called honeypots. There's an article just... Yeah, exactly. Did you do you like that? Let you know it's a good topic to transition into. By the way, Chris, that is uh, Eric Swalwell, who's a congressman from California, who was the one saying, "Russia, Russia, it's a, the president is in a conspiracy with Russian agents, and we know it." And by the by the way, uh, the guy is about fourteen years old. If you see him on television, and he really is. Um, uh, let's put it this way: he's not the sh- sharpest crayon in the box. And he's screaming all the time about this whole Russia investigation. And sure enough, it turns out that he is um, having a relationship with a Chinese spy. Chinese spy. And he's on the Intelligence Committee. By the way, he's still on the Intelligence Committee after he has literally been compromised by a Russian spy. No such evidence was ever presented regarding the president or anybody around him. You know what they said? Oh, well, this woman came in to meet with the president's son, uh, and it turns out that she worked for the Russian government. And when she said she was going to come talk about one thing, she actually wound up trying to pitch another issue. Uh, Okay. I mean, yeah. And then that was the end of their uh, interaction. Uh, Well, that's not exactly what happened with Eric Swalwell in the sense that it's exactly the opposite of what happened with Eric Swalwell. What happened with Eric Swalwell was a Chinese spy uh, came to him and he decided to engage her uh, in a personal, intimate relationship ongoing ongoing. And what's his defense now? Oh my gosh, this was leaked uh, to discredit me. First of all, if it was leaked to discredit you, don't you think you would have done that before the election, not after the election? Uh, And second of all, uh, that doesn't sound like uh, a denial now, does it? Because it's not, right? He's guilty of this. There's no question about that. Uh, Hannah, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I I think it's terrifying. (laughs) So if this really is, and make no mistake, I think it is, a coordinated effort to undermine the U.S. as a whole, 
terrifying. And it's surprising to me that it hasn't gotten more coverage or that people aren't more scared of this. So I think this is one of the areas. I think a lot of times the public turns a blind eye to things because they don't want them to be true and they don't want them to be as scary and as terrifying as they really are. And I think this is one of them. If we really are, if the Chinese government is really is infiltrating the American government and with this coordinated effort to target these um, low-level congressional members or whatever their efforts are, it's terrifying. And like Chris said, there has been, there's been evidence come out that they are infiltrating our institutions and sending secrets back home. And I saw an interesting segment yesterday with Maria Bartiromo on Fox News talking about her new book about the China influence in America. Terrifying. And it's shocking to me that this isn't more of an issue or that more isn't being done to stop it. All right, y'all. That's uh, that would be a good place to stop. Let's um, let's take a break. Uh, Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation right now. We are also joined by Hannah Howard and Chris Corbett. We will be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show, one hundred one point one FM. The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show here on the six o'clock hour on one hundred one point one FM. The Answer. This is Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. This. Friday afternoon. Dave will be back on Monday. On the line with us are Chris Corbett, attorney uh, and engineer in the Conway Little Rock area and likely forthcoming candidate from Conway for the state legislature. Also, Hannah Webb Howard, a law student over at the Bowen School of Law, as well as president of the Second Amendment Society housed at the Bowen School of Law. We are talking about this ongoing threat from China and how Eric Swalwell managed to be uh, subject to uh, a personal relationship with a Chinese spy all along uh, while he was falsely exclaiming that the president is involved with Russian spies. And so really doubly doing the bidding of the Chinese, throwing the scent of uh, the press and the public off of the fact that the Chinese are doing significant spying within the United States, that he is a conduit for that spying and uh, building a false narrative that the Trump campaign was actively working with the Russians as part of the election process in 2016, a concept that was debunked, debunked by the special counsel himself. So uh, we're talking about this. Uh, Chris, what do you think uh, should happen uh, regarding Swalwell in terms of his membership on the Intelligence Committee? Do you think Nancy Pelosi has any intention of acting on this? Uh, What are your thoughts? That's a good question, Rob. You know, it's. Uh, I think he what the first thing he was given some kind of intelligence briefing. That's how he found out. So we've got some intelligence agencies, uh, you know, CIA or FBI or somebody monitoring this stuff. Uh, that kind of gets into those Pfizer um, courts. Um, yeah, this is a foreign individual. She was over here trying to spy. It's that's obvious, and they knew about it. And um, once he became informed of it, it looks like he shut it down. But um, it, we've got to be on guard. Uh, it's happening right now. They, they take our intellectual property. Um, they 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 make foreign. They make our uh, counterfeit currency. And they bring it over here. These, this type of ransomware attacks, these virus attacks, 
This stuff is not some hacker in a basement. It is it is created by foreign governments. There's no doubt in my mind that these things are um, out there and uh, maybe coming out of North Korea, uh, coming out of China, definitely coming out of Russia. And they may blame it on illegal groups of people doing it, but it's it's government. It's government funded. Um, and and what's what's ironic is with 1.5 million foreign students in America, they come over here and get educated on our tax dollars and then leave the country with their engineering degrees and their, their computer degrees and then use it against us. Yeah, we really do need to be skeptical of when foreign nations are sending their students over here for education. Uh, are they, first of all, are we subsidizing that education? Uh, we used to believe, oh, well, it's all part of this great, grand outreach that we do, and it's good for our relationships with foreign countries. And I am growing skeptical that that is a valid justification, meaning I, I'm starting to view the situation that foreign nations are sending people over to exploit our system, get funded by our system, and then go back to their home country to work often against our system. And if that's the case, we need to do a better job at screening uh, who we're letting into this country uh, for education. I'm so sorry, did I hear I, one of you? Go ahead, Hannah. Yeah, Hannah, go ahead. So go ahead. I think an interesting question that all of this raises is what are they going to do with the information? So we have China obviously trying to steal information from us on all fronts. So you remember um, the TikTok issue where Trump said, listen, American company has to buy TikTok or else we're shutting this thing down because they are stealing all of our um, kids or whoever are on the app. I have the app. Um, they're stealing their information. So my question always was, what are they doing with it? What's their plan? Are they just wanting to become the superpower of the world? Or are they taking this information, putting it together to then turn around and use against us in some other kind of nefarious fashion? So what's their end goal? Why do they want our information so badly? Why do they want what my search history is on TikTok. Why does the Chinese government need that and want that? And what are they going to do with that? And I think that's something that we don't always talk about. Of course, we talk about um, them leading in education and leading in development and becoming an economic superpower. But what are they doing with all this other information they're gathering? It's a really important question, isn't it? It's scary. It's a really important so question. So that's the thing. Why... It's scary to me as a young person who I like social media, I like being on it, and when the government comes out and tells me, you need to get off TikTok because the Chinese government is spying on you through it, that's terrifying. What on earth do they want to know about the Amazon finds that I look at on TikTok? What, how can they use that information against me? All right, y'all, let's continue this conversation into the next segment. You are listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. We got some news to get to and commercials right after this. 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show here in the six o'clock hour, Friday evening. And we have on the line with us, Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer, Conway Little Rock area. 
hopefully candidate in two years for state legislature, and also Hannah Webb Howard, a law student at the Bowen School of Law and president, founding president of the Second Amendment Society housed at the Bowen School of Law. Uh, we're going on uh, to uh, finish up our conversation on this pressing issue, really, regarding Eric Swalwell. Uh, he's a Democratic congressman from California who uh, has been vocal throughout the Trump presidency, falsely claiming that the president has been involved with Russian spies. And as it turns out, Eric Swalwell has been involved biblically with a Chinese spy. And so it's really <laughs> remarkable. The You like that one, Chris. Thank you. The delayed yeah, I like that. Biblical that relations. Yeah. A biblical relationship. Um, uh, he's been so involved with a Chinese spy, uh, and now uh, he's claiming, oh, I'm being persecuted. After, of course, if anybody was persecuted with, with false claims of being involved with spies, it was the Trump administration. This, by the way, this claim is not false. There's no question. He has not denied the fact that he has had a personal relationship with a Chinese spy. To be clear, it appears he was unaware at the time that he was being involved with the Chinese spy. That's the whole point of it, right? Uh, but nonetheless, and on the Intelligence Committee, you know, if you worked, for example, in the uh, armed services and you were found to have been in a relationship uh, with a foreign government spy, unbeknownst to you, you would be immediately taken uh, uh, off of any security clearances. And so uh, are we doing the same for Eric Swalwell, or is there a double standard, particularly when it comes to Democratic legislators in the House, because the House is run by Nancy Pelosi? Chris, what are your thoughts? And it's outrageous, right? It's like something out of a movie. You know, and he's out there, the, the hypocrisy, the mountain of hypocrisy from this guy and the Democratic side. I mean, just an example, Hunter Biden got a diamond from China, a three-carat diamond? Come on, man. I mean, it's it's outrageous. And he needs to be removed from the Intelligence Committee. That's news. I didn't know he was on the Intelligence Committee. And they, they got to remove him from that. Security clearance, gone, right? And, um, you know, did this lady have some sort of uh, underground radio that she went back to an apartment and tapped it out in some Morse code or something? What What is going on here? It's really a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and I don't know how she communicated. Of course, in today's day and age, it's rather easy to communicate with foreign governments for their spies to do so, that is, right, with the Internet and all of these other technologies. So unlike the old spy movies, I don't think referring the information back is of any significant um, hindrance. Uh, I think yeah. insinuating yourself uh, into the elected officials' uh, inner circle is what is more difficult, and we well know how she insinuated herself. And so this is the problem. This is the problem that we yeah. see time and time again. You're, you're right, Rob. They've got encrypted free email out there. It's called Proton Mail. ProtonMail.com, not to advertise for them, but you go there and you can get an encrypted email address. Everything you hit send, it will encrypt it so it can't be uh, viewed on, viewed or preyed upon when it transmits over the Internet. Now, assumingly, I guess you could get into it from her computer or something like that. But, yeah, there's, you're right. There's easily ways to send information that's encrypted. 
So. Uh, that, that, incidentally, that's the name of my favorite uh, superhero, Proton Man. But in any event, getting back to the <laughs> the, uh, the details of it all, uh, Hannah, uh, what are we supposed to do with all this? I think that's the question of the hour. Um, I think if you're a private citizen, you do what you can to protect your information. So uh, I can't advertise for the companies because I don't know what they're called, but the the companies that lock down your Internet browsers and your information, I know that there's upteen of them out there. I think it's important for everybody to have one of those to protect your own personal information. And then as an individual, all we can do is demand that our government do something about it. And whether that's going to be effective, maybe, maybe not. I guess it depends on how the um, election lawsuits go. Um, But I think you have to do what you've got to do as an individual and quit relying on the government to protect you and protect your own stuff to the best that you can. It's really telling that... um Swalwell was at sort of the leading edge of these false accusations of spying uh, or collusion, I should say, uh, by the Trump administration uh, when he actually was the subject, was the target of a a spy plan by the Chinese, uh, because you would think that someone on the Intelligence Committee who uh, is aware more so of the types of mechanisms used by foreign nations to uh, get involved in American government at the local level uh, and at the national level, uh, that he should have been more on guard for these types of things. But it's another example of what happens when you elect a 12-year-old from California to be in the United States a congressman. Obviously, he's not literally 12 years old, but uh, he certainly has the maturity and uh, speaking uh, ability of someone in that vicinity, because I've heard him countless times on television, because it seems to me that for people like Swalwell, uh, the less they have to say, the more they want to say it. And so he is constantly on television, uh, bloviating uh, and saying nothing. And it's uh, it, the chickens have come home to roost, I suspect, in his case. And instead of coming forward and saying, I didn't know that she was a spy, uh, I'm saddened to hear that she was a spy. And I take responsibility uh, for doing whatever I did. And here's how I did or did not keep the country's secrets safe from her. That's an open question, by the way. We don't know what he told her. Uh, And maybe that's why he's deflecting. Maybe that's why he is now sort of trying to point the finger everywhere else uh, but himself, because we still don't know the answer to the question, hey, Eric Swalwell, what exactly did she learn from you? Did she learn any uh, secret information from you. He has claimed in response to press inquiries regarding this relationship that he's not allowed to disclose uh, and discuss it because it involves national security. It, it involves secret items. Uh, well, the only thing that I know of that could be secret in this investigation relative to his knowledge is what 
inside, so to speak, what secret information did he disclose to a Chinese spy? Now, I don't know the answer to that question. It may be zero, but he's the one putting up this as a reason for not discussing it with the press. He doesn't have to disclose anything that comes under uh, uh, one of our secrecy levels uh, of government information, but he's using that as a defense. So I am concerned of the possibility that he has, in fact, turned over inadvertently uh, or otherwise secret information to a Chinese spy. Uh, It's really distressing to me, uh, and it's really remarkable that the press has done very little to cover the story. I'm not saying they haven't covered it. They have, but very little to cover it. And with none of the invective that is so often present when they're covering a story regarding President Trump. There's a story in the New York Times now about how these states uh, are, uh, like 15, 17 states are suing four states on how they changed their voting methods. And the other states, the 15, say, well, that's undermining their, their home state residents, citizens, from getting their votes counted because you've used an improper method in these four states. And then the four states have responded in a filing, which is perfectly appropriate. And the New York Times say, it's a blistering response. Blistering. Blistering. It's a... It's a, it's a legal filing. How is a legal filing blistering? Oh, because you really like what they have to say versus the 15 to 17 other states, what they had to say. So since you like one side's comments over another side's comments, the, the, the side that you like, that's the blistering side. And they repeatedly go over and over and say, oh, there's, there's nothing to these lawsuits. In the end of the day, they may not be successful. Who knows? But remember this. They also said... There was nothing to the claim that I and many conservative law professors and other conservatives had been making at the time of Obamacare that the the then administration, the Obama administration's claim that they could impose a mandate on every American, on every American pursuant to the Commerce Clause was an unconstitutional claim. And what did the press say at that time? They said that was a fringe theory. They said it was a nonsensical theory. Well, I'll tell you this. Five out of the nine justices adopted that so-called fringe theory. You can call it as fringe as you want. It's a law of the land. The law of the land. And so uh, I don't look uh, for interpretation of the validity of a legal claim to the New York Times and their leftist cabal. Because they're not the ones that actually make the decisions. Go ahead, Hannah. Just to be clear, every time that, you know, you as an attorney file a filing in a lawsuit like that, it's supposed to be blistering. That's your job to make it blistering. So that's not news that's right. that a powerful and argumentative filing was filed in a case. That's the point of the legal system. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and But it's, it is so transparent these days how the press is in bed with the left and how slanted the press is in excuse me, in general, regarding what conservatives say versus what the left say, says. Look at how they're covering this story about Biden, uh, Hunter Biden's uh, being under investigation for tax fraud. They were all over the president. What about his taxes? What about his tax returns? Uh, and so far, there has been no claim uh, that, excuse me, there has been no 
um, indictment uh, that he has engaged in tax fraud. But there was an expose, a huge expose by the New York Times, and I put expose in quotes because there was a huge series of articles. Expose suggests that there was more substance to them than there were about Trump's taxes, and there is this small mention of, oh, yeah, well, Biden's son's under investigation, yada, yada, yada. And by the way, before the election, uh, these are debunked claims, debunked claims. How they debunked now, huh? How's that working out for you? (laughs) What do you think about that, Chris? You know what's going to happen, Rob. He's going to get away with it. His dad's going to pardon him. He can be convicted of whatever. He's obviously taking money. You know, with that Arkansas case and his, and his, um, his, his baby's mama. Um, he's gotten some money from China. Where did it go? Did he pay taxes on it? Let's see his financials. And it got settled, so we didn't get to see his financials in that case. Yeah, it's uh, uh, and he got paid. How much was it? Um, Fifty thousand? No, eighty-three thousand dollars a month for an annual salary of a million dollars a year uh, by a Ukrainian gas company uh, for influence peddling. Let's be clear. Hunter Biden got paid a million dollars a year for influence peddling. Oh, well, I was on the board of Amtrak. Yeah, because your daddy handpicked you for that as well. Really? For Amtrak? Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right, Cole, let's continue this segment. Uh, Let's continue this conversation, I should say, into the next segment. Uh, Robert Steinbach is guest hosting for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. We also have Chris Corbett and Hannah Howard talking with us. We will be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is Rob Steinbach filling in for Dave here on the Dave Ellswick Show Friday evening. Dave will be back on Monday on the air for this final segment. We have Hannah Webb Howard, law student and founding president of the Second Amendment Society at the Bowen School of Law, and Chris Corbett, frequent guest on the Dave Ellswick Show, uh, as well as attorney and professional engineer in the Conway Little Rock area, and hopefully forthcoming uh, candidate for the legislature in 2022. Folks, it's our last segment, and I want to change topics now. The president uh, has announced, along with Israel and Morocco, that Israel and Morocco uh, have entered into a a treaty. And this is now the fourth Arab nation that the president has facilitated relationships between Israel uh, and that Arab nation. None of this has happened on uh, with, on the watch of any prior administration, Democratic or Republican. And, uh, of course, you might remember that when the president said, hey, you know, when I promised to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, as every prior, mod- every modern prior president has done, prior modern, whichever is the right order, uh, has promised to do, I actually meant it. I'm not a liar like the rest of them. Democrat and Republican alike, by the way. And he did it. And what did the Democrats say? They said two things. First of all, oh, my God, there's going to be a conflagration. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a horror show. Mm, don't sell four peace treaties later, right? Horror show? Mm, maybe not. Uh, maybe their predictive abilities are nil. Maybe they are uh, talking out of their wrong end. 
Uh, second thing they claimed was, <laughs> well, what we need to do is we need to blackmail Israel. You see, Israel's our friend, and Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, and Israel uh, produces innovation, Nobel Prizes, advances in science and medicine. So uh, if we move the embassy, as we should, because we've promised to do this for, say, five presidents going back, Democrat and Republican alike, now that we actually intend to do it, we should blackmail them into doing something for us, even though we've promised to do it all along, and it's the right thing to do. Because, you know, that's what you do with family members. If family comes to you and says, hey, uh, can you do this for me? You say, yeah, only if you do this for me. Wait, what? That's not what you do for family, and it's not what you do for friends. When, you, when it's the right thing, you do it because it's the right thing. But then again, the, the left is no friend of Israel. The left is uh, an enemy of Israel uh, in modern day. Look at how the left interacts with Israel. Uh, they have uh, repeatedly attacked Israel at every opportunity they have. Uh, and as it turns out, President Trump was the, not only the best friend for our best friend in the Middle East, turns out he was the best friend for all of these Arab countries that now have resulted in better relationships with Israel. So with that said, Chris, what are your thoughts on this topic? Oh, I think Trump has accomplished a lot, and I think this uh, you know, this mail-in balance totally influenced the, influenced the election. And just look at Trump's results in the steel industry. The st- he transformed the steel industry as a professional engineer and as a structural engineer. I've watched steel production in our own state triple. And, you know, it creates uh, millions of dollars in jobs. Just a great article came out the other day. Uh, Big River's going to buy out the rest of it. And um, this uh, fantastic steel, modern steel manufacturing uh, location here in Arkansas, he's transformed Pennsylvania, their steel industry, by put, slapping these tariffs on this cheap steel coming in from China. And let me tell you, I've seen it. We talk about grade 50 and grade 60 rebar. I I can't tell you that that stuff from China is literally grade 60. I'm talking about whether or not that steel can hold up the weight that it's designed to hold up. And as an engineer, I'm I'm aware of the the, the needs of of quality steel in the United States. And he literally, by the tariffs he slapped on them, he transformed that because China kept dumping this bad steel on us. And then let's move to other areas that he took care of. He's building this wall. He's getting it done. Strong borders equals a strong country. Uh, We can't have lawlessness in that in that regard. Um, I'm all for the, the Mexican people want to come over and work and work hard. Come over legally. We want you here. Um, and then what he's done in Jerusalem, outstanding. He did it. And he wasn't a politician when he got in there. He's a business guy. And um, unfortunately, here we are now. We got, we got, we'll got we be riding with Biden now, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> riding with Biden. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we we riding with Biden. So anyways, that's uh, that's where I'm at on it. Hannah, what do you have to say? So I think, uh, continuing what he was saying, it's a huge mistake for the left or anyone and a common law that has been continued throughout the last four years is that Trump's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not effective. He's just big, dumb, orange man. Trump is incredibly intelligent, and he knows exactly what he's doing, and 
his success and the things that he's got done that people before him couldn't figure out how to get done or they didn't have the guts to get done, he's done it. And he's made it look almost effortless. So a big lie that's been just promulgated out there is he's dumb, he's unintelligent, we're going to go to war with all these people because he doesn't know what he's doing, he's reckless. But really, he's very meticulous, he's very thoughtful, he's incredibly smart, he plays 40 chess, this isn't, you know, some crazy conspiracy theory that he's super smart and plays 40 chess, that's how he's been so effective. And it was a lie that caught on, and I think hurt him in this election, that, oh, he's dumb, he doesn't know what he's doing, and that's not at all true, and his success has shown that. Well, this is, the repeated claim by the left against Republicans has always been that they're not as smart as the Democrats. And the problem is, I have no doubt that Obama is a bright guy, uh, but his ideology is flawed and dangerous for America. Uh, And so I don't support what he has to say, even if he says it in a smart fashion. Uh, The flip side, of course, is not that the Republicans are not smart. It's just that uh, this claim is false. Uh, to begin with, uh, and that is not the ultimate measure, Uh, the ultimate measure, or it is one of the measures, one of the critical measures that is left out of that discussion is what's the person's ideology. Thank you, Robert, so much for hosting. Uh, Dave will be back on Monday morning at 6 a.m. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, We will see you guys later. Have a great weekend. Pero año y feliz